the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Yesterday, of course, was the first presidential debate, the first of three, and one vice presidential debate that's going to take place next Tuesday. It was a harrowing experience to sit through. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes, but I want you to also know that we'll share a classic interview with Ray Rhodes Jr., author of Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles Spurgeon. We'll talk in the five o'clock hour with Hans von Spakovsky, an authority on a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration, the rule of law and government reform. He's a senior legal fellow and the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about the risks of mail-in voting. We got two very different perspectives during the debate last night. Which one is accurate, and should we be concerned? We'll also talk with Zach Smith. He is a legal fellow in the Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He also served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Florida. We'll talk about the Supreme Court and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Want to uh, let you know that James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Appreciate all three gentlemen. Well, let's just jump in with both feet. Some of the um, headlines from last night's debate: Trump Biden clash over Barrett's Supreme Court nomination. Obamacare in the first showdown. The presidential debate gets personal as Biden calls Trump a clown. Trump tells Biden he's not smart. And Trump tells Biden radical left will have it you wrapped around their finger as the clash over law and order took center stage. Again, debate ratings down uh, in the overnight um, tallying. It's still a developing story. And one uh, commentator called it a dispiriting first face off and an insult to America. Wolf Blitzer said, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the last one, referring to the last debate. Undecided voters describe the president as a crackhead, arrogant in a focus group held during the event. And uh, Bump says baffling debate strategy was to tweet out loud for 90 minutes. Woodward said that the uh, president was assassinating the presidency and um, the worried world reacted, calling it a dangerous um, preview of the weeks ahead. Biden called the uh, military. Well, I won't even repeat what he said because it's um, these are words I wouldn't use. Uh, but while accusing the president of having said something similar in a discredited um, article in The Atlantic, Nicole Wallace says, I'm surprised the debate didn't devolve into pure violence. Wolf Blitzer said, clearly, this was the most chaotic presidential debate I've ever seen. Jake Tapper on the debate said it was a hot mess inside of a dumpster fire. And it goes on from there. Looking at um, National Review, Jim Garrity points out the uh, debate was a dumpster fire. It was disheartening to watch. Kevin Williamson says Trump did himself no favors for the first 10 to 12 minutes of the debate. He was walking away with it. This didn't last. And Matthew Con- uh, Continetti says not the um, who wins the unwatchable debate, not the American people. Well, some of the issues that came up during the, the debate was election integrity. We're going to talk with Hans von 
Pekofsky about that in the second hour. But with the COVID-19 prompting significant mail-in or absentee balloting, election integrity has become a major topic. Biden suggested it's not a concern, but of course the president said it absolutely is a concern, warning of fraud, bringing up numerous examples of primaries earlier this year where mail-in ballots uh, were a problem. He made a distinction between absentee ballots and what he called solicited ballots, the mass mail-in ballots saying that we don't have the capacity to manage the increase in number without the years of preparation that we saw, for example, in the states of Oregon and Washington. Forest fires, the Green New Deal, Climate change and forest management also came up as a major issue during the debate. Uh, the debate, the president argued that forest management was key to preventing wildfires uh, scourging across the um, uh, the California landscape. You need forest management, uh, he said. Later, adding every year, I get the call, California's burning, California's burning. If you had forest management, good forest management, you wouldn't be getting these calls. Well, Biden spoke of weatherizing uh, buildings and increased use of electric power vehicles, saying we can get to net zero in terms of energy production by 2035. Then the question came up uh, what this would cost. Uh, trillions of dollars was the president's answer. Uh, the vice, former vice president's answer was this will generate um, untold millions of jobs. Healthcare was an issue. The president asserted that Biden would uh, back socialist uh, socialized medicine, saying your party wants to go socialist medicine. Biden responded that his Democratic primary opponents attacked him for not supporting Medicare for all. The platform for, of the Democratic Party is what I, in fact, approve of. Wallace suggested Trump had no plan to replace Obamacare. The president suggested otherwise. He says that um, they got rid of the individual mandate, and that was a step in the right direction. Confirming um, uh, Judge uh, Coney Barrett uh, was one of the issues um, and the court packing question that Biden said he just simply was not going to answer and ending the filibuster saying that that would become the issue. Well, it needed to become an issue to understand what the former vice president intends to do. Um, we'll see whether or not the media picks up on that and insists that he ultimately answer the question. Uh, President Trump insisted that this would alienate his um, left flank, and that's why the vice president was unwilling to answer the question, knowing that they fully embraced the idea, while those on the more center uh, and, and right flank of the uh, uh, liberal Democrat Party would uh, oppose the idea. Racism and critical race theory came up. Wallace asked the two candidates to address race and asked President Trump about this, his executive order to stop training in critical race theory in the federal government. The theory promotes the belief that a person is automatically advantaged and disadvantaged based on their race. I ended it, the president said, because it's racist. He didn't mention that it's a propaganda and it uh, tips the playing field so that it's no longer uh, balanced. The president continued, if you were a certain person, you had no status in life. Uh, we were paying people hundreds of thousands of dollars to teach really bad ideas and really uh, very sick ideas. Really, they were teaching people that our country is a horrible place. I wish he had been a bit more specific because I think there are good reasons to suspend the uh, program as it currently exists. Uh, meanwhile, the former vice president claimed that uh, President Trump has walked away from the goal of uh, equity. He is a racist, Biden said of the president. The fact that there is racial insensitivity, people need to be made aware of what other people feel like, what insults them, what's demeaning to them. And if the program simply focused on that, it might be a different story, but it goes far beyond that. 
Uh, it's important to, uh, for them to know many people don't want to hurt other people's feelings. Well, that's that's true. Critical race theory is something far um, different than that. Also, the subject of law and order. The president talked about the riots in numerous cities across the country, including Portland, saying the people of this country want and demand law and order. And you're afraid to even say it. When Trump pressed him, Biden said he was for law and order. However, later Biden said Antifa is an idea rather than an organization. Well, Biden and Trump clashed on who controls the Democrat Party. And the moderator reminded the candidates during this uh, back and forth exchange who the moderator is. There seemed to be some confusion there and an unwillingness on the part of both candidates at times to follow the rules that their campaigns agreed to. Um, and when uh, Biden was discussing his health care plan, noting that Democrats in the primary were attacking him over the fact that he wouldn't abolish private health insurance, as many of the candidates were proposing, Trump interrupted again and accused Biden of having agreed to abolish private health care and institute Medicare for Medicare for all, which Biden has not done. Um, and the, the president replied in regards to his openly rejecting Medicare for all. You've just lost uh, the less the left. Rather, you've just lost lost the left. Um, the clash over masks and shutdowns, who's responsible for the deaths of those who are struck by COVID-19 and so on. It was a difficult debate to watch. In fact, we had uh, been prepared to lift audio from the debate and replay it, but decided after sitting through it um, that it wasn't worth really repeating much of what was said. Certainly, there was lots of factual information. And in fact, listening through the debate a second time, uh, in fact, listening as opposed to watching was a bit more instructive, but it was so challenging to get through it all. that I think a lot of uh, the substantive parts of the debate were lost on listeners. Um, so it was something of a challenge. Now, we need to take a break here in just a moment. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the highlights of the debate, what happens next, and uh, who the winner and loser, or perhaps winners and losers, are following the first presidential debate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. This segment will be followed by an interview with Ray Rhodes Jr., author of Susie, The Life and Legacy of Suzanne Spurgeon, wife of Charles Spurgeon. That'll be kind of a cleansing of the palate, if you will. And then in a second hour, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky about the risk of mail-in voting. Is there a risk? And we'll talk with Zach Smith. We'll talk about the Supreme Court and Amy Coney Barrett, who has just recently been nominated and an up or down vote is expected before the election, which is just weeks away. Well, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden refused to say during Tuesday night's presidential debate whether he would support adding justices to the Supreme Court or ending the filibuster should he become president. Now, the party is divided on the issue. Whatever position I take on that, and he refused to say which he had taken, that'll become the issue. Well, there's a non-answer. He responded when asked by the debate moderator, Chris Wallace, uh, whether he would support adding justices uh, known as court packing or ending the filibuster. The issue is the American people should speak. You should go out and vote, Biden continued. Well, not knowing what position he holds, the American people can't speak to that issue because they don't know what they're voting for. Are you going to pack the court? President Trump interjected. He doesn't want to answer the question. I'm not going to answer that question, Biden responded. The exchange became more heated as the president continued to interrupt the former vice president, who at one point addressed his opponent with, Will you shut up, man? This is language most parents wouldn't allow their kids to use. 
Well, Chris Wallace asked President Trump if he's willing to condemn white supremacists. The moderator asked him if he would tell militia groups to stand down and not add to the violence in U.S. cities. He specifically referenced the Proud Boys. Well, the president's reaction to the question about the far right white supremacist groups uh, during the uh, uh, presidential debate quickly drew reaction ranging from pushback to anger from politicians and pundits. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, the lone uh, African-American fellow Republican, said the president needed to correct his statement. The president did attempt to do that earlier today when addressing the press. Well, at the time, the president was responding to a question from uh, Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace, who moderated the debate, sort of, asking if he was willing to denounce white supremacists, to which the president replied, sure, I'm willing to do that. Democratic nominee Joe Biden then suggested Trump specifically condemn the far-right group Proud Boys, to which the president responded in part, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by, sparking outrage on social media. Senator Scott told reporters on Wednesday he thought the president misspoke when he said stand back and stand by. And by the way, the Proud Boys are now making T-shirts uh, and proudly wearing the president's words. But uh, Senator Scott called it on him to correct his statement if he really uh, if that really were the case. The president, as I mentioned, speaking to the press earlier today, said absolutely they need to stand down and allow law enforcement to restore peace in all areas of the country. He also said, I don't know who the Proud Boys are. You're going to have to define who they are, um, which was puzzling to some. He seemed to uh, know who they were during the debate or didn't at least question who they were at the time. So that has become a major issue, particularly for those looking for major issues to either win um, or highlight the opponent's weakness in the debate. Meanwhile, the sheriff of Multnomah County, which includes Portland, quickly refuted the president's claim of an endorsement during the uh, general election presidential debate. As Multnomah County sheriff, I have never supported Donald Trump and will never support him. Sheriff Mike Reese responded on Twitter last night. The sheriff added, Donald Trump has made my job a hell of a lot harder since he started talking about Portland. But I never thought he'd try to turn my wife against me. Not sure what that means. Well, during the chaotic debate in, uh, in Cleveland, the president touted support from almost every law enforcement group in the United States after being asked why he should be trusted to deal with race issues. He mentioned Florida and Texas, Ohio. And excuse me, the president said also Portland, saying that today um, the sheriff in Portland had um, given his support. Well, voters, for the most part, felt like nobody won the first presidential debate between President Trump and Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. That's according to one pollster, Lee Carter. Um, When I asked who they thought won last night, a third said Biden, a third said Trump and a third said no one. I've never seen a third of people who watched it think that no one won. And I think that was the general sentiment of independent voters. I think that was the general sentiment of people who were undecided. She went on to say, I think if you were already shored up on Trump, you thought you'd see uh, the best of him. If you, up on, you saw the best of him. But for the most part, I think people really felt like nobody won last night. In fact, some suggest that while neither of them actually won, the American people were ultimately the losers. Well, last night's presidential debate, which came to us from Case Western Reserve University and Cleveland Clinic, wasn't the ugliest of things. A plucked chicken, for example, is uglier, but not by much. So writes Douglas Andrew in his contemplation of the event. As the Wall Street Journal reports, President Trump and Joe Biden clashed over the Supreme Court, the coronavirus and the economy in a debate marked by interruptions and insults from both candidates Tuesday, with the Republican leader telling his rival that for 47 years you've done nothing and the Democratic challenger calling Mr. Trump the worst president that America has ever had.
The journal, though, doesn't quite do justice to that 47 years remark. In a night of petty insults, never-ending interruptions, it seemed to have staying power. To be fair, though, the lightning quick thinking and rhetorical genius of Joe Biden was also on full display, especially when he referred to the president as this clown, a racist and a liar and told him to shut up. Uh, I'll do all in my um, power to make the case why you shouldn't be reelected, Biden said, but he certainly um, can't make the case for why he himself should be elected. As Trump put it, he would allow left-wing anarchists to burn down your business. He would hand over your jobs to China and your country to socialists. Well, ouch. Well, the bar for a successful Biden performance had been set preposterously low, so low, in fact, that if Barack Obama's uh, backslapper stayed on his feet, didn't drool, he would be perceived by the mainstream media as having won. Mission accomplished, at least in that regard and with that um, um, metric. Among the most contentious topics was Trump's Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's vacancy. And were our mainstream media an honest and serious lot, the headlines today would be talking about Biden's refusal to answer a simple question put to him by the moderator, whether he'd refuse to pack the Supreme Court with additional justices. Um, but Biden refused to answer the question, and Trump let him have it. President Trump drove home his law and order bona fides, uh, noting that the rioting that was, has plagued our nation for the past four months has taken place in states and cities controlled by Democrats. He pressed it home again and again. The president also repeatedly challenged Biden to name even a single law enforcement organization that's supporting him. Biden couldn't mention one. Well, Trump contrasted his economic record against that of the Obama-Biden administration, which he accurately noted had produced the worst economic recovery since the Great Depression. Now, the president uh, missed a couple of golden opportunities to correct two damaging falsehoods that the Biden campaign has uh, been shamefully pushing, that the president was referred to uh, neo-Nazis in Charlottesville when he, was, uh, when he said that there were very fine people on both sides and that he called our troops suckers and losers while in France for a World War I commemorative event. Uh, CNN's Jake Tapper has dismissed as false uh, the uh, the claim as to the latter. The president shouldn't uh, shouldn't have uh, interrupted Biden's mid sentence to denounce that despicable lie, which has since been refuted. Well, Trump um, hammered away at uh, Hunter Biden and his shady and lucrative dealings with Ukraine that devolved into his personal life. And if last night's debates had a silver lining that both campaigns can agree on, it's that neither of them lost a single vote. After all. Who could have watched that performance and been moved by the brilliance, the command and the presidential bearing of either guy? Thus was the debate last night. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Ray Rhodes Jr., Susie, the life and legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, wife of Charles Spurgeon. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, she was a partner, a support, backgrounder. These are words we might think of when we consider the wife of Charles Spurgeon, the most famous preacher of the Victorian era and one of the most famous of all time. His wife, Susanna Spurgeon, was his partner, his supporter and lived in the background. But Charles' ministry is inextricably tied to her and his success cannot be considered without crediting her. Now, it's important to note that Susanna uh, Spurgeon lived for Christ without leaving her home. She was a remarkable woman in her own right. She wrote uh, 
uh, nobody's coattails and was an instrumental in the gospel ministry of the Spurgeon family as her husband, if less well-known. Well, in this well-crafted and thoroughly researched biography, Ray Rhodes Jr. paints a portrait of Susie's uh, own life, her growth in faith, her joyful marriage, her strength in suffering, her devoted ministry, and her lasting legacy. Through health troubles, financial hardships, tensions with extended family, the profound pressures of the most public ministry in the world, and the loss of her dear husband, Susie remains faithful to God and to Charles, her husband. She was devoted to both, served both, and found joy in both. From her devotion and faithfulness grew a ministry all her own, meeting the needs of poor pastors with both books and material goods. Susanna Spurgeon was the wife of Charles Spurgeon and would have wanted to be known as such, but she was a minister of the gospel and a uniquely faithful and gifted woman whose life deserves our attention and honor as well. This biography gives us that opportunity, and I'd like to dedicate this program to a woman whose profile is very similar right here in our community. Her name is simply Marilyn. Ray Rhodes Jr. serves as founding pastor of Grace Community Church in Dawsonville, Georgia, and as president of Nourished in the Word Ministries. He served four congregations over three decades of pastoral ministry, and for 15 years he has um, led Nourished in the Word. Uh, He has published several books and holds theological degrees from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is married, has long been a Spurgeon enthusiast, and his uh, doctoral thesis focused on the marriage and spirituality of Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. We're delighted that the book is now available for the rest of us, simply titled Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Georgianne. Uh, Excited to be on your program today. Well, it says a lot about you that in writing about the name that we are all familiar with, Charles Spurgeon, that you also included Susanna Spurgeon and considered her life worthy of your attention and focus as well. She was a remarkable person, although in a very unconventional way. Let's begin by talking about how the two of them met and uh, her first impression of him, which may surprise some. Yeah, her first impression of Charles was not positive. Uh, Susie was a city girl. Her life was London and uh, later Paris. And Charles Spurgeon was born in uh, the Cambridgeshire area of uh, England in the rural areas of Puritan, where the Puritans had walked and lived. His, his grandfather was a pastor in a village church. And Charles was pastoring a village church when he got a call from London to come and fill the pulpit, uh, essentially to substitute while they were without a pastor. And so he came in December of 1853. Susie did not attend the morning service. She came at the evening service at the urging of family and friends. And when she saw Charles Spurgeon, she could not understand why the uh, once prominent New Park Street Chapel, Baptist Chapel, would call, invite this country preacher to preach in their distinguished church. And she was rather offended uh, by his hair. <laughs> by his uh, the way he used his handkerchief, his clothing, his speech, everything about him. She was not impressed with uh, young Charles Spurgeon. So they were essentially made for each other. <laughs> <laughs> Opposites attract, I guess. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> what made Susie um, a, a good partner for this uniquely gifted but unusual man uh, and challenging given uh, the ministry that he ultimately would, uh, would have? Yeah, well, again, Susie was raised in a culture that valued Bible reading and prayer. Uh, Usually morning and evening devotions was a part of uh, conservative Victorian life. Uh, Whether it was on the exterior or a matter of the heart, she grew up 
hearing the Bible and attending church to some degree at least. She was actually converted about a year before that December day when she heard Charles Spurgeon but didn't tell anyone and almost immediately began doubting her faith and struggling spiritually. And that continued on until 1854, uh, April of 1854, when uh, a member of the church, and Charles now is preaching regularly at the uh, congregation, and uh, still not formally the pastor, but uh, nevertheless, he gets word that this young lady in the church is struggling spiritually, and he sends her a copy of John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. And Susie reads that, appreciates that, and then feels like she can trust this young pastor. And he's two and a half years her junior as well. Uh, she begins opening up to him, and their friendship begins to develop from that point forward. So she had a foundation of Bible training, but not a believer until about a year before uh, meeting Spurgeon for the first time. Hmm. And again, that was not a, a love-at-first-sight um, situation. Once they were married, um, what kind of relationship do they have, and how did they negotiate, or did it come naturally, how the two of them would navigate ministry uh, in the same space as his uh, notoriety was growing and hers, um, her uh, abilities were waning? Yeah. Well, uh, to understand that, we uh, have to back up a little bit to their engagement period. and you know, Things move really fast from December of 1853 to uh, April of 1854, and he gives her the Pilgrim's Progress, and then he reveals his feelings uh, for her in June of 1854. Just a couple of months later, she is surprised by that, but very excited. She talks about her heart beating rapidly and all the rest. And two months later, they're engaged. So from December to, of 1853 till August is just their, the period before they were engaged. So things change rapidly in Susie's mind and in Charles's heart. And soon after, Susie began to realize, and from uh, the crowds that were coming to hear Charles Spurgeon preach and whatnot, that he was no ordinary man. And with her mother's counsel, she made a commitment early on that she would not be a hindrance to his ministry no matter what, and she would support him. Now, that doesn't mean it was easy. She was lonely because sometimes he would preach ten times a week, and he would be gone a lot in the early days. But I think foundational to her dealing with him uh, and his sort of unique schedule, and Spurgeon was a very busy man. Ultimately, he wrote 135 books, he uh, 63 volumes of sermons, oversaw 60 institutions, pastored what we would call a mega church, and preached all over the all over the place. And so Susie had to be alone a lot. But in the early years of their marriage, she traveled with him uh, a good bit as well. In fact. One of the surprising things about her is uh, how much she enjoyed spending time with him, and she hiked the Alps. While Spurgeon rode in a carriage talking to his publisher about theology <laughs> and books, Susie's out in front, and she's exploring the sites. And that's a, quite a contrast to what will happen soon after. Yeah, that is incredible. The two of them had a set of twins, Charles and uh, and Thomas. When did her health uh, begin to fail to the point where she was not able to accompany him as vigorously as she had once and had hoped would be their life together. Yeah, the twins were born uh, really uh, soon after they were married. They were married in January of 1856, and the twins come along at the end of September of 1856. And then there's a great tragedy in England that uh, Spurgeon's preaching, and folks are trampled to death, and he falls into a great depression over that. Some people die, others are hospitalized. 
And uh, so it, it, some people believe that she had some effects of sickness after the birth of the babies, but nevertheless, it wasn't so severe that she couldn't hike and travel with him. But about 1868, she says that her traveling days are over, and she has surgery by one of the most uh, famous gynecologists of the day. We don't know the specifics of the surgery, but we're relatively sure it was some sort of a female issue. And that led her to a, really a lifetime of, of being homebound. She seldom was able to attend church again, and uh, she sometimes was in such pain that she could raise neither her head nor her hand, she said. And yet, nevertheless, in the midst of that suffering, and, and Charles, by the way, his, his own health is mm-hmm. not good, and he suffers from the depression. Uh, and yet he's a very joyful man. It's sort of the, the two sides of Spurgeon, very happy, joyful, faithful, gospel-preaching, gospel-believing man, and yet having these really dark times of sadness, and sometimes he couldn't explain uh, why he was sad. She would read to him. He loved for her to read the poetry of George Herbert uh, or the convicting sermons of Richard Baxter, the Puritan, and she would read commentaries to him when he was studying. They had a great love relationship. They held hands. They walked the property when she was able to. They wrote love letters to each other. When Spurgeon was away, he wrote her every day. Uh, Sometimes uh, one, one particular letter, he talks about daydreaming of her. It's hard to imagine the great theologian, the mm-hmm. great pastor, Charles Spurgeon, talk, uh, writing a, such a love letter. But that's the way he was. He treasured her, he valued her, and he encouraged her to live and be faithful to Christ in her own right, even when she was sick. And she did some remarkable things from her sick bed. Yeah, which, of course, she did. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Ray Rhodes, Jr. The book is simply titled Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with uh, Ray Rhodes Jr., the book is titled Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. And the foreword, by the way, is written by Albert Moeller. Well, let's talk about uh, the ways that Susie stood out in ministry on her own, apart from the public work of her husband, because she was a woman committed to serving Christ from the confinement of, of her own home. That's right. In 1875, Charles Spurgeon published uh, the first volume of his Lectures to My Students, still being published today, as Spurgeon remains one of the top-selling Christian authors, even in our day. And he gave a proof copy of that to Susie and asked her to look over that, which she did. And she was so excited about that that she made a statement to Charles. She said, I wish we could give a copy of this to every pastor in England. And Charles looked at her and surprised her when he said, well, he called her wifey. Wifey, uh, why don't you make that happen? And she found some coins that she had saved for a rainy day, was able to purchase 100 copies uh, to give away, and it became such a a hit that she continued to do that, and others contributed, and over the course of her lifetime, she gave away 200,000 volumes of various books, mostly Spurgeon uh, titles, to poor pastors. That was her big burden, I think, from that point forward, because many pastors were very poor. They had trouble uh, feeding their children, uh, medical care, clothing, uh, everything. Uh, and yet, with all of that, with their wife and their children and trying to care for them, they, w- they would dare not spend what little money they could scrape up on books. 
And Susie believed not only did they need medical care and, and food and whatnot, but they also needed books if they were going to bless their congregation and help extend the gospel. So she saw this as really a gospel outreach. And so she invested in getting these books to pastors, but she also would send clothing items for the children and the wife uh, from time to time, as well as occasionally money, stationery, things that would make uh, that would relieve some pressure from those pastors' home. Because if the pastor is healthy mentally, emotionally, and physically, then the church has the better opportunity to be healthy, and the gospel has a greater opportunity to expand. And so that was really a front and center of one of the things, one of many things that she did from her sickbed, in essence. She became a prolific author, uh, writing five standalone books, editing another. After Charles died, she uh, contributed to and was a co-editor of the massive, colossal work on Charles Spurgeon, the autobiography of him. It then was in four volumes. And she even planted a church uh, after his death. So Susie was a remarkable woman, and she did that uh, with poor health, much of her work was accomplished even after Charles died, a widow, aging, and yet she believed that God would answer prayer and that she put her hand to the plow, did everything that she could do with the strength that she had, and she trusted that mm. God might give the increase. Everything she could do with the strength that she had. Well, there's a lot to be learned from that statement alone. How unusual was that for a woman in Victorian uh, in the Victorian era to have that kind of impact? Yeah, well, we think of uh, Florence Nightingale. I mean, there were women who were having an impact in, in their culture and in their world. But for the most part, in Victorian England, women had few rights. Uh, they essentially uh, were under the complete control of their husbands. They, they had no independent finances or uh, or anything like that. The control, if they brought money into the home, it all became the husbands uh, at marriage. And they couldn't vote and various things. But things were changing during the Victorian era. But women were mostly known as uh, homemakers. And, uh, and in the domestic realm, they were called often in Victorian times the angel of the house. Uh, Spurgeon refers to Susie often as the angel of the house. And yet Susie, uh, embracing that, because she too believed that uh, homemaking was valuable and that uh, her responsibility was to love her husband and embrace his ministry and vision and follow him. I mean, she, she was not rebellious in any way. She joyfully submitted to Charles as the head of the home. And yet uh, Charles is encouraging her, use your gifts and use your talent. So nothing about him would have been the oppressive, such as the case of some homes in the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. So he encouraged her outward and and she, shy at first, early in their marriage, ultimately really just embraced that vision, and she stepped out uh, by faith in Christ and, and moved forward. What were the most pronounced and difficult pressures of being married to the most famous preacher of that era? Yeah, I think that the loneliness was part of it because uh, he was gone a lot, initially primarily from ministry, but as he got older, and he died at 57, so he accomplished all of those things we mentioned earlier hmm. uh, and died at 57, a young, I'm almost 57, so <laughs> a, a relatively young man. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so he was gone a lot, but later on, uh, from 1870s till his death, he had to travel to the s southern coast of France, often for about three months at the time, prescribed by his doctor, getting him into a warmer, a warmer climate out of London for gout and uh, for kidney disease. 
and also just to brighten him up. Uh, and so he was gone for extended periods of time, long distances, and Susie couldn't travel with him until the very last trip that Spurgeon made, not knowing it was his last trip, not knowing he was going to die, God miraculously gave her the strength to make that last trip with him. Hmm. In what ways did Susanna not only engage in ministry that she initiated, but help Charles in ministry and in life that made him uh, better at what God had called him to do? Yeah, this is this is my belief, Georgine, that uh, Char- we would not have the Charles Spurgeon that we have if he had not had the wife that he did. She joyfully embraced his ministry, and after he died, she spent the rest of her years promoting his legacy, not to make an idol out of Spurgeon or anything like that, but she knew that he was all about the gospel. And so by extending his legacy and promoting his legacy and getting his sermons and books uh, across the world in various languages, the the gospel would go forth. And and you know this, I'm sure. You open a Spurgeon book, and you don't have to read very far before you see something of the beauty of Christ, Mm -hmm. the glory of a God who saves sinners like us by grace through faith in Jesus. And Spurgeon was all about that, and Susie was too, and that's what they were passionate about. So by investing in her husband's legacy, the husband that she loved dearly and missed terribly after he died, she was giving the world the gospel, and we today, we open Charles Spurgeon books, and I, I, don't, I think we owe a lot to this invalid widow in London who invested her heart and life in the gospel. We owe to Susanna Spurgeon, the Charles Spurgeon that we enjoy today. Now, Susanna and Charles Spurgeon had two sons. What influence did she have in raising up these two Spurgeon sons to be in ministry? Yeah, in many ways, she was the primary influence. I mean, both of the sons revered their father, but he was absent more, and she was with them more often. And so when they were young, she would uh, sing with them around the piano. She was a pianist, and she read to them. Uh, She uh, ministered the gospel to them. Now, both of them came to faith in Christ from someone else other than Charles or Susanna, but both of them really looked to their mother as the key Uh, influence on bringing them to saving faith. And they both became ministers of the gospel and served in the various institutions that Spurgeon had started or led. And uh, they both died as faithful men with their own faithful families as well. But uh, Thomas especially, uh, he treasured his mother. And I think the relationship he had with Susie was, was very, very close and very affectionate. They both talk about one another in very affectionate terms. What would you say is Susanna Spurgeon's lasting legacy? Yeah, well, uh, one, to uh, not quit. Uh, Do what you can, as we said earlier, with the strength that you have for as long as you can. Uh, Don't be content just to, uh, you know, idle, uh, to sit idly if you can do something. There are some people who who literally can't do anything. Maybe they can pray, and that's that's everything, right? We're asking the God of creation to, to help us and bless his work. So that's that's outstanding. But sometimes we can do more than maybe we think we can do. Susie Spurgeon was not an overconfident person who imagined that she could do great things. She believed she had a great God. And so she persevered through great suffering. She invested in something bigger than herself, uh, seeing pastors and their families helped and the gospel extended. 
and she gave her heart to her husband. And she did so without hesitation or reservation or qualification. She loved this man, and he loved her. And she looked forward, uh, when he died, she looked forward to the day that she too would be in heaven, and together around the throne of God, they would praise the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so many things to learn from her. I'm just moved by her story, and the more I've learned about her, the more I've wanted to know about this dear woman. Well, I thank you so much for sharing what you know about this dear woman, because I think we will all be encouraged and inspired by her. Again, the book is titled Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. And uh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. uh, You're doing a great job there. You're doing the Lord's work, and we thank God for you as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He also served for several years as an assistant United States attorney for the Northern District of Florida. We'll talk about the Supreme Court and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Well, America should insist on the right to vote in person in their polling places in November. The issue came up in the debate last night, the president insisting that this uh, upcoming election has the potential for serious fraud. While Joe Biden, on the other hand, said there's nothing to see here. I just read one headline and I read them almost on a daily basis that came out uh, earlier today that New York's uh, New Yorkers received invalid ballots with wrong names, addresses, and that sparked confusion. Uh, Residents there reported receiving them, and multiple voters who live in Brooklyn have reported errors, including the wrong names on their ballot envelope, which would invalidate their ballots. Now, some are suggesting that um, requested ballots, and the president made this point last night, is one thing, uh, but to, to send them out indiscriminately is another. Well, here to help us sort through whether or not there really is a risk of mail-in balloting as broadly as we're seeing it applied in this 2020 election. Hans von Spakovsky is an authority on a wide range of issues, civil rights, um, uh, civil justice, First Amendment, immigration, the rule of law, government reform. He's a senior legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Hans, thank you so much for joining us once again. Sure, thanks for having me. Now, in the debate last night, there seems to be uh, two different views as to what uh, what concerns we ought to have about this upcoming election. Uh, the president insisted that with the large numbers of mail-in ballots that are being sent out, not requested, but sent out, uh, there's a, a tremendous opportunity for fraud that we're seeing incidents in which ballots are being dumped and so on. Vice President Biden seemed to suggest that, no, this is not an issue. Just enough of you need to vote and we're going to have a a safe and fair uh, outcome on election day. Your thoughts on whether or not there's a risk or maybe it's being overstated. Well, it's not being overstated. I mean, let's talk about the fraud problem for just a, just a moment. Um, I mean, you mentioned the problem in New York. um, And on the other hand, the Georgia secretary of state just recently sent the names of a thousand voters to law enforcement officials there after they discovered that um, these voters had voted uh, all by absentee ballot and then showed up at their polling place also to vote. Uh, Virginia just reported uh, double, two, two ballots were sent to 1,400 voters. And we have had numerous problems um, like that. Uh, but, but here's the other issue for folks. Look, to, quite apart from the fraud issue, um, if you vote by mail, the chances that your ballot will get rejected when you send it back to election mm-hmm. officials and not counted is much higher than if you vote in person. That, that is a fact. I mean, the New York Times reported on that 
eight years ago in an article about it. And look, recently, you know, liberal sources, NPR, Washington Post reported that the rejection rate of absentee or mail-in ballots was so high in all of the recent primaries that were held where, where there was a huge increase in mail-in balloting that over half a million ballots were rejected by election officials. And now why is that? It's because people make mistakes. They forget to sign the ballot, which you have to do with an absentee or mail-in ballot. They don't provide all of the information that you have to provide uh, with an absentee ballot when you send it, send it back. Um, the Postal Service doesn't deliver ballots on time. And in some cases, the Postal Service, and th- this has happened in the primaries this summer, they forget to postmark the ballot. And if they don't postmark the ballot and election officials don't know whether you actually voted it by the end of election day, which is a requirement, then your ballot gets rejected. So the chances of you being disenfranchised are much higher if you vote by mail, which is why it's a very good idea for folks to vote in person and demand that election officials uh, have as many polling places open as possible, you know, and they just have to follow Georgina, the same health safety mm-hmm. protocols that are allowing all of us to go to the grocery store and our pharmacies. Now, for those who are uh, most at risk of the coronavirus pandemic, um, filing a, or, uh, an absentee ballot is one thing. The president made a clear distinction between that and kind of the blanketing of ballots being mailed out by uh, officials. Your thoughts right. on, um, you know, we can go to the grocery store, we can go to the bank, we can go to a restaurant. Uh, protocols are in place. Why isn't it just simply that that's the way to go about it? Why risk the possibility in a major presidential election, the possibility of so many being disenfranchised, of not having a settled outcome on the on election day, and perhaps in the week, days and weeks following? What's well, the there rationale? Isn't any to, there isn't any reason to run the rationale, and all those all these folks who are pushing this, saying, "Oh, well, you, you can't vote safely in person." Uh, we know that's not true. Uh, it was done safely in various primaries, uh, including in Wisconsin, uh, where they put in all the kind of health guidelines that that are needed. And look, the, the problem with sending out ballots simply to every registered voter, which is really what the, the president was complaining about, is that, look, uh, Georgine, you know, voter rolls are notoriously bad shape all mm-hmm. over the country. They're filled with the names of people who are dead, who've moved away, and with duplicate registrations. Let me just give you one idea of how bad this is. The Public Interest Legal Foundation released a report two weeks ago in which they compared um, state voter registration lists and, and, and took a look at them. And, you know, in the 2016-2018 election, they found over 80,000 folks voted twice because they were registered twice at the same address. That's how bad election officials were at not realizing that the same person was registered more than once. If you mail out ballots to every registered voters, those people who were registered more than once are going to get more than one ballot, and they may very well vote it, particularly because election officials don't seem to realize that, that the people are registered twice. It's just incredible 
that they have one thing, these election officials have one thing that they're charged with doing. And somehow, as was it the, the governor of New York said, he said, you know, we don't or New York said that we don't have a modern system to manage right. the, the one thing that election officials are, are charged with doing. What's the worst case scenario? November 3rd comes. It's election day. People are watching the polls. What's the worst that can happen, given the scenarios you've just outlined in various places across the country that haven't taken years, as was the case in Oregon, to prepare for a a mail-in balloting system? Well, look again to New York. New York had its primary on June 23rd. There was a huge exponential increase in absentee or mail-in balloting, which election officials were not prepared to handle. As a result, uh, not only was there a high rejection rate, one in five ballots was rejected it took them, if you can believe this, six weeks, six weeks to count the ballots. And then there were lawsuits filed um, claiming that uh, these ballots should not all have been rejected. So just take that, translate it or mm. multiply it to happening in multiple states across the country. One, it taking weeks to count the results and find out who won. And then litigation disputing, for example, the, the large number of uh, absentee ballots that were rejected for not complying with state requirements. It's going to be a very interesting electoral season that will not end, yes. at least from my perspective, on November 3rd. This is going to uh, go on for quite some time. Uh, is it, is it um, completely outlandish to imagine President Nancy Pelosi, who is charged with stepping in if it isn't resolved by uh, the date set in the Constitution? I still think that's a remote possibility, but I think it's more of a possibility this year because of the potential chaos uh, that may come in the election than we've ever seen before. Yeah, absolutely. Hans von Spakovsky, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate your insight and your knowledge, and you're taking the time to talk with us. Sure thing, anytime. Thank you so much. Again, Hans von Spakovsky is an authority on a wide range of issues. He's a senior legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Zach Smith. We'll talk about the Supreme Court and the nomination and the process to follow with Amy Coney Barrett. This is The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. One of the issues that was not anticipated to be a major issue during this presidential election was the appointment of a Supreme Court justice to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died unexpectedly just weeks ago. Now, during the previous administration, uh, there was a dispute over whether or not Barack Obama should uh, nominate and appoint a Supreme Court justice. And the Democrats this time around have argued that people uh, that uh, argued rather that the circumstances surrounding the current Supreme Court vacancy are identical to those surrounding the vacancy in 2016 and that therefore the two vacancies should be handled the same. Well, are the circumstances the same or are both parties hypocrites for having changed their position uh, to one that's more politically expedient and advantageous? Well, here to talk with us about that, because I I think it's important to consider the nuances of all of this, is Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He served several years as an assistant United States attorney in the Northern District of Florida, And he joins us now to talk about the Supreme Court and the nomination and that process involving Amy Coney Barrett. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Georgine. I really appreciate it. I suppose we could just argue that uh, Amy Coney Barrett 
is highly qualified, and the real issue is abortion, and I'm sure we'll get to that. But let's begin with the, <laughs> let's begin with the the circumstances of her nomination. Now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away. It's uh, close to the election. Uh, under the Obama administration, when Mr. Uh, uh, Merritt uh, was nominated by uh, then President Barack Obama, Republicans said, "No, uh, we need to have an election and let the people decide." What's different this time around? And are both parties uh, just hypocrites, or is there a legitimate reason why the Rep- why the Republicans think this is the right time and the right thing? Politicians being hypocrites? Never. I've never heard of that happening. <laughs> I know. I'm shocked, too. <laughs> but, uh, but on a serious note, you know, I think uh, Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, they, they have laid out a case for why the situation today is different than the situation in 2016. And basically what they've said, and they cited historical precedent to this effect, is that in 2016, there was divided government. Uh, the presidency was held by Barack Obama, a member of the Democratic Party, while the majority in the Senate was controlled by the Republicans. And historically, whenever there has been divided government in an election year, uh, nominees to the Supreme Court have not been confirmed. This year, the difference is there's uh, unified government, in a sense, uh, in that President Donald Trump is a member of the Republican Party, and the Senate is controlled by a majority of Republicans. And so, again, citing the historical precedent, the president, Mitch McConnell, have said in that circumstance, uh, nominees have historically moved forward. And so that's the, the main difference between 2016 and today. And that's the precedent that both the president and Mitch McConnell have, have relied on in distinguishing the two situations. That the that's the argument that they brought forth. Is it a legitimate a legitimate argument? Uh, I, I, certainly, the Democrats aren't going to embrace it because it's not in their interest to see a Supreme Court justice seated who is a strict constitutionalist. Is it a valid argument? Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, it strikes me as ironic to some extent that today uh, many Democratic lawmakers who were strongly pushing for Merrick Garland to to be confirmed quickly to the Supreme Court are today saying it's inappropriate for the president and the Senate to move forward uh, with confirming Judge Barrett to be on the Supreme Court. And so, you know, my thought, my response to that would be if it was appropriate in 2016 uh, for Merrick Garland uh, to move forward and receive a vote by the Senate and be confirmed to the Supreme Court, then certainly uh, I don't see any reason uh, why that, that logic would be different today for those same Democratic lawmakers. Well, let's talk about the nominee herself, Amy Coney Barrett. Judge Barrett has been vetted by the Senate before. She um, has uh, served uh, in the, on the bench uh, before. Um, she is certainly well qualified. She served as a clerk um, in the Supreme Court before. What's the major objection? And we'll get into the singular issue that this really is about. Uh, is there a major objection about her qualifications to sit on the, uh, the bench? Well, if there are any objections to her qualifications for credentials to sit on the Supreme Court, uh, I certainly don't know of any. Uh, you know, before she was appointed as a Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals judge, she spent uh, about 15 years or so as a professor at the University of Notre Dame, uh, where she taught a number of courses. She researched, wrote, and thought deeply about many of the issues that the Supreme Court will face. And even those who may uh, disagree with her judicial philosophy or disagree with her on ideological grounds, uh, everyone agrees that her credentials uh, are impeccable and, and certainly qualify her to be a member of the Supreme Court. 
Uh, now, unfortunately, I, I think one of the main areas of attack we've seen and we will see against Judge Barrett is there's an attempt to paint her as some sort of a religious fanatic, uh, somebody who's outside of the religious mainstream. And that's, you know, that's just an unfortunate line of attack. And I think in her scholarship as a professor, in her decisions as a judge on the Seventh Circuit, uh, she's sh- shown herself to be nothing but a thoughtful uh, jurist who's committed to interpreting and upholding the Constitution and the laws as they're written. Now, we know the Constitution forbids a religious test, and yet that has been the focus of much of the criticism. But I think more uh, to the point, the fact that uh, Roe versus Wade is likely to be reviewed by a Supreme Court she would be seated on is the issue that most raises the ire of Democrats. While Barrett has said, and I'm quoting, uh, that jurists should not look to the Supreme Court as a super legislature, or rather that the court shouldn't be looked in that way. They should look at a court as an institution that interprets all laws and protects the rule of law, but doesn't try to impose policy preferences. That's the job of Congress and the president. Now, she's making a clear case for the separation of powers that perhaps our view of the Supreme Court has been wildly exaggerated because too often uh, members of Congress have abdicated their responsibility and looked to the courts to accomplish what they cannot uh, accomplish legislatively or by persuading the American people. Um, This seems to be a very balanced perspective on the limited role that the Supreme Court ought to have, but the outsized role that they currently have because they are seen as uh, sort of the backdoor to accomplish what lawmakers cannot. Absolutely. And that's one of the things Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, they deserve a lot of credit for emphasizing and appointing judges who have that originalist, textualist philosophy, judges who understand that their role isn't to legislate from the bench, it's not to impose their preferred policy preferences, it's to look at the text of the Constitution, look at the text of the laws as they're written, and interpret them. And that's exactly what Judge Barrett uh, has, has done and said she will do as a member of the Supreme Court. And, you know, when we watched this past weekend, when she accepted the nomination in the Rose Garden, she said, you know, she clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia and that his judicial philosophy was hers, too. Uh, And that should be encouraging words for all of us, uh, because, like you mentioned, it will certainly help uh, keep judges in their proper lane, restore the proper role of courts in our society and really push back against this idea uh, that judges can legislate from the bench or just impose their own policy preferences at will. Again, uh, she is quoted as saying, it is never appropriate for a judge to impose that judge's personal convictions, whether they derive from faith or anywhere else on the law. So she's made clear that her judicial philosophy is not to impose her personal preferences, but to do what the judiciary is supposed to do and interpret the law uh, and the Constitution. Now, the process will begin uh, mid-October with a vote expected um, mid to late October. Your thoughts on how this is likely to, to, uh, to end? Is there any means by which the Democrats can prevent the president and the Senate from seating Amy Coney Barrett? Well, I certainly think uh, the Democratic members of the Senate, even the Democratic members of the House, Nancy Pelosi, AOC, are going to do everything they can to throw a roadblocks in the way of Judge Barrett's uh, confirmation process. And so, you know, we heard Nancy Pelosi, AOC, talking about trying to impeach the president, impeach Bill Barr, impeach potentially hundreds of executive branch officials in an attempt to force the Senate to hold uh, impeachment trials uh, for those uh, executive branch officials. 
but, you know, fortunately, Mitch McConnell, he's an experienced hand. He's been around the blocker time or two, and he's uh, aware of all of the procedural mechanisms that, that the Senate has at, at its disposal uh, to push back against these attempts to derail the confirmation process. And I'm hopeful uh, that the confirmation will move forward and we should know one way or the other at the end of the month or early November uh, whether we will have a, a Justice Barrett on the Supreme Court. Zach Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Zach Smith is legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He served several years as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Florida. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Commission on Presidential Debates on Wednesday said the highly contentious first debate between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden made clear that additional structure should be added to the format of the remaining two debates in order to ensure a more orderly discussion of issues. Well, the Commission's comments came after Tuesday night's debate in Cleveland. That's in Ohio, of course, included repeated interruptions, both candidates hurling charges and insults at each other. It was really quite difficult at times to just sit through and watch. Well, the Commission on Presidential Debates sponsors televised debates for the benefit of the American electorate. Uh, They said in a statement on Wednesday that last night's debates made clear that additional structure should be added to the format of the remaining debates to ensure a more orderly discussion of issues. Now, some are suggesting you have a format in which for 30 minutes, one of the candidates addresses questions put to them by the moderator. Then the other candidate has 30 minutes and whether or not there's time for interaction. Some are suggesting 90 minutes is too long, although this is a consequential election. And one would assume that uh, given uh, the fact that these are candidates for the highest office in the land, it ought to be able to move forward without the kind of rancor that has become quite common, but it has become quite common. Well, another new Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham on Wednesday grew agitated with former FBI Director James Comey. The senators questioned him on the FBI's handling of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance or FISA court um, warrant applications for ex-Trump uh, aide Carter Page and their reliance on the infamous Steele dossier that has been discredited and the source of which has been identified. Well, Graham uh, began the hearing with a monotone opening statement expressing his desire to get to the bottom of the issues that have raised uh, that were raised rather uh, on the use of the FISA warrants as the FBI investigated potential coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. Well, during his questioning of Comey. He prodded the former FBI director, who seemed to have very little knowledge of the case he oversaw, on whether he was proud of the investigation into potential Russian links to the Trump campaign, which was called Crossfire Hurricane, and his knowledge about the Steele dossier. Comey said he was largely proud of the investigation, despite some concerning parts, which is a pretty remarkable statement, given what we know now. But he said he was unaware at the time of much of the allegedly exculpatory evidence for Page that was not presented to the FISA court in the Warren application and responded that he did not know the answer to many of Graham's questions. That became a source of frustration for Graham and others who repeatedly raised his voice. Was this an important case for the FBI, Graham asked, to which Comey said the overall investigation was important, but the page application was far less. I mean, you have a sitting president of the United States by January of 2017. You have a dossier that's salacious um, and using other language that accuses the president of being involved in all kinds of escapades in Russia and a bunch of uh, overstuff and Um, That's over stuff was the actual language. And you keep using that document over and over again to get a warrant, Graham said. 
every time you found information uh, to put the reliability of the dossier in question, everybody seemed to ignore it and to just plow forward. Comey said he was not aware. Should you have been told about it? Then got back, raising his voice. Comey said that he could not answer the question of how it went. And again, um, uh, the question of whether or not uh, Comey had any grasp of the role that he played uh, as the head of that investigation uh, was called into question throughout. Meanwhile, just ahead of the debate last night, the National Intelligence Director John Radcliffe released a declassified um, a document or series of them to the Senate Judiciary Committee alleging that Hillary Clinton was responsible for orchestrating the Trump-Russia collusion hoax. Back in July of 2016, U.S. intelligence agencies received information from analysis of Russian intelligence indicating that the Clinton campaign had plotted to tie Donald Trump to Vladimir Putin and the Russians, hacking of the Democratic National Committee. According to the report, Clinton intended to direct attention away from the scandal surrounding her own private server email. Importantly, Radcliffe's letter notes that the U.S. intelligence community does not know the accuracy of the allegations. Yet he also seems to be clear that the retention is not such by intelligence units. Radcliffe and other senior national security officials about the intelligence, including the alleged approval by Hillary Clinton, on the 26th of July in 2016, of a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify candidate Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by Russian security services, demonstrating that the Obama administration was aware. However, the question of the accuracy of the information isn't the main point. Senator Lindsey Graham argues, I'm not saying whether it's true or not, I'm asking Democrats, do you give a, well, darn, whether the FBI investigated it or do you just care about investigating Trump? They took the whole country uh, through, um, well, a terrible time. I'm paraphrasing. I don't use that language for two and a half years. And is it fact uh, far fetched to believe that the Clinton campaign uh, would do something like this after Christopher Steele? He goes on uh, to that. But he was alluding to the fact that uh, Barack Obama's FBI used the Clinton funded Steele dossier, the primary subsource we learned just two weeks uh, uh, was a long suspected Russian spy as a pretext to justify launching a politically motivated investigation into Trump's alleged collusion with Russia. I think people are rolling their eyes. They're simply shrugging their shoulders. This is no longer relevant. But in context, to have a, uh, an opponent's campaign and a sitting administration engage in this kind of corruption is relevant. It is important. And if the shoe were on the other foot, I think the media certainly would have um, handled it differently. They would have responded differently. And you'd be reading headlines every other minute about it. So they're trying to get to the bottom of it, but the media simply has decided we don't care. We care more about removing Donald Trump from office, and therefore these important issues are simply not being explored. Well, here at home, Governor Kate Brown has commuted the sentences of 66 more Oregon inmates due to COVID-19. That brings the, the total number of COVID-related commutations up to 123. The governor announced yesterday that she had commuted the sentences of the additional 66 incarcerated adults uh, due to the pandemic. The Oregon Department of Corrections determined that none of the 66 presents an unacceptable public safety risk. That's kind of an interesting uh, wording, unacceptable public safety risk. That means there is a public safety risk, risk, but one that, well, we find acceptable. Well, of the 66 released, 10 are considered uh, particularly medically vulnerable to the virus, and 56 are um, within two months of their release date. 
Well, this is the second round of prison commutations related to COVID-19. In June, uh, Governor Brown released 57 inmates who were determined to be medically vulnerable. That brings the total number of uh, commutations, as I mentioned, to 123. Back in August, the uh, president, or excuse me, the governor asked corrections to compile a list of prisoners who would be good candidates for release due to their risk of falling seriously ill from COVID and the proximity of their release date. Uh, this uh, earlier this month, the department returned a letter to the governor outlining 74 inmates who fit that criterion uh, for an undisclosed reason. Five inmates declined being reviewed for early release out of the 69 remaining. The governor commuted the sentences of 66. Well, Kentucky, uh, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron's office on Wednesday announced its uh, move to delay the release of grand jury records in the controversial March police shooting of Breonna Taylor in Louisville hours before the audio recording was to go public. My understanding is that should be released by the end of the week, uh, most likely on Friday. The attorney general said he needed to redact um, the names and addresses of individuals who uh, contributed to that report who might uh, find themselves in harm's way if they were identified. And that process is ongoing. Also, Deontay Lee Murray, the man accused in the ambush shooting of two Los Angeles County deputies in Compton earlier this month, has been charged with attempted murder, according to prosecutors. Murray is 36. He was taken into custody after a lengthy standoff three days after the deputies were shot. His arrest was unrelated to the attack on the deputies. 31-year-old woman and 24-year-old man were shot in the face and head while sitting in their patrol car near the Compton Metro Station. Both underwent surgery and have been released from the hospital. They're expected to fully recover. And a judge in Nevada approved an $800 million settlement today between MGM Resorts International and its insurer and the families of the victims of a deadly mass shooting at a county music festival, or rather a country music festival in Las Vegas in October of 2017. Under the settlement, terms MGM Resorts will make payments to more than 4,400 relatives and victims of the shooting. The judge's decision finalizes an agreement that was announced earlier this month. That shooting, you might recall, killed 58 people, injured more than 850 others at an open-air concert near Mandalay Bay Resort in what was the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, only days ago, we were reading headlines about tens of thousands of kids walking out of their classes to protest the climate crisis. In a show of support, several school districts announced they were granting excused absences. So writes Jim Daly in a recent column on Bring Your Bible to School Day. That's coming up tomorrow. It's a celebration of religious freedom and God's love. He writes that 1.1 million can skip school for climate protest. A New York Times headline trumpeted uh, about a story explaining the nation's largest school district and that they would grant passes to the protesters. This week, it will be fascinating to see how the national media, as well as the nation's largest school districts, respond to hundreds of thousands of students participating in Bring Your Bible to School Day on Thursday. Will these students' uh, efforts be to freely express their faith, receive equal levels of school district support and glowing media coverage? It's not a hypothetical question, considering the stories we hear from students like Isabella, an elementary school student who was uh, taken to the principal's office after asking permission to share a Bible with a friend. 
growing from just 8,000 students in 2014 to 500,000 within six years. Bring Your Bible to School Day is annually sponsored by Focus on the Family. On the first Thursday of every October, students engage in a visual celebration of religious freedom by taking one step, one simple step, bringing your personal Bibles to school and initiating conversation about how God's love has changed their lives. Well, Bring Your Bible to School Day is a student-led event. It's up to students to lead and organize the event in their individual schools. It differs from recent climate change walkouts in some pretty notable ways. First, rather than walking out in protest, bringing your Bible to school participants are walking into their schools with a message of hope and an effort to begin conversation. Uh, Take Perry, for example. Uh, He's a 17-year-old high school student in Colorado. He um, has brought his Bible with him to school every day since he was in middle school. I want to be real at school and at church and with my friends, he says. But the real test of his faith came when his mother was suddenly diagnosed with cancer during his junior year in high school. He said reading just a few Bible verses a day brought peace and emotional stability. That's what really got me through that, just practically digging into God's word. And now he wants the freedom to talk about that spiritual strength with other classmates. Well, another reason that kids are walking into schools, those who have the freedom to do so rather than out of them, is that they want more dialogue, not less. For example, Haley is an elementary school student who organized a bilingual event in her Southern California school district. Some of the kids, she said, they are different religions and they also wanted to learn. I feel more open about talking about Jesus at school because of that. Of course, adults have been demonstrating a much different standard lately. You may recall seeing all the recent headlines about a smear campaign that was launched against NFL quarterback Drew Brees after he recorded a simple 20-second video shout-out encouraging students to live out your faith and know you're not alone on Bring Your Bible to School Day. I guess the onslaught of intimidation tactics isn't all that surprising. After all, it's hard to miss all the repeated headlines these days about Christians being marginalized for their faith, whether it's Second Lady Karen Pence, who has attacked for teaching art at a Christian school, or Chick-fil-A being banned from airports due to the owner's biblical beliefs. These stories remind us why events like Bring Your Bible to School are needed. It's vital to empower the next generation with the understanding that they don't have to hide their faith or compartmentalize it to the private sphere. The nation's Judeo-Christian heritage protects their rights to boldly, authentically, and freely live out their faith without fear of punishment. Meanwhile, as some adults continue to engage in smear campaigns designed to muzzle religious perspectives, perhaps we can take a cue from some of the youngest members of our society. The hundreds of thousands of kids like Perry, Haley, and Isabella who provide us with a simple yet powerful portrait of courage, the kind of courage it takes to start a simple conversation with someone, someone you care about. Let's hope these examples will remind all Americans of the principles of civility, free expression, and open dialogue that we once held so dear. Tomorrow is Bring Your Bible to School Day. You can go to Focus on the Family's website for suggestions on how to do that if you are uh, socially distanced, and you're not actually going to your school, a physical location. But kids are encouraged to prominently um, post their Bibles, to use the hashtag, bring your Bibles to school, and so on, to just communicate the love of Jesus and let other kids know you don't need to be ashamed of the gospel, not to be obnoxious, but to simply say there is hope in Christ, and to help uh, embolden them in sharing their faith.
Well, the presidential debate was, uh, my, as Michael Brown put it, a snapshot of America. It wasn't a very flattering snapshot. He points out that things got ugly fast. They stayed ugly until the end. That's why headlines from both the left and the right spoke of chaos and a circus and a bitter shouting match. He tweeted early on, I have heard f- uh, family arguments that were more mature and civil than this. Unreal. And then later, there's so much dirt flying, it's hard not to feel dirty just watching, end quote. Well, over at Red Street, uh, State, rather, Joe Cunningham put it like this. This is a hard one, folks. Time and again, this debate proved to me that this is a terrifying time to be alive. Two old men shouting at each other while a third old man tries to get them to stop shouting at each other. Watching this debate was a type of self-destructive behavior that I'll be recovering from for a while, I think. Howard Kurtz on Fox News said it was the presidential debate as barroom brawl, as television shout fest, as exhausting insult derby. Over on CNN, Chris uh, Salitza He stated it was without question the single worst debate I've ever covered in my two decades of doing the job. The sad thing, though, is that the debate was a microcosm of the state of America. We are gravely divided. We are nasty. We burn bridges rather than build them. We don't trust anyone that is not in our camp. We are deeply suspicious. Everyone seems biased. And are uh, are there any national unifying voices? Sadly, there are none. As for the debate itself, there were clear misses on each side. And I say this as someone who, uh, with decades experience in public debate. In the end, regardless of who you think won or lost the debate, in some ways we all lost. Many Twitter followers agreed, as indicated by the responses to a post-debate poll, which asked, who won the debate tonight, in your opinion? About two hours after the conclusion of the debate, the responses were Biden, 8.6, Trump, 37.2 percent, neither 20.1 percent, America lost 34.1 percent. So even among a largely conservative Christian voting base, meaning those following him on Twitter, almost as many said that America lost as said that Trump won. The overall conduct of both candidates was inappropriate, unnecessary, and at times disgraceful. And again, I say this as public debater myself. It's true that Trump had more gotcha moments than Biden, as uh, documented in the uh, hearing of it. But still, this was tough debate to watch. As for Chris Wallace's handling of the debate, while he definitely had a combat Trump interruptions more than Biden's, he did seem to scold Trump like a child while also failing to challenge Biden for his evasive answers. And it went on. Ultimately, last night's debate reminded me, he writes, that there is a lot I don't like about the way uh, these men conduct themselves. Unfortunately, with the name calling and insult, uh, insult flinging, what really mattered most got lost, namely the diametrically opposed policies of these two candidates and parties. Hopefully that will be great of focus in the days ahead. As for watching two more debates, I've lost my appetite right now. As for reflecting on this debate as being a snapshot of America today, that's what grieves me most. And I think many of us felt that way. Regardless of whether we thought our candidate won or lost, it was a sad spectacle, and I hope we continue to pray for our nation. I want to thank James Blend for engineering today's program, Clark Hilton, I should say, for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Pray for the nation, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.